Judges chapter 19. Last week we looked at Judges 17 and 18, and it really spoke of just a, a gentleman by the name of Micah who lived in the mountains of Ephraim. And he was a, uh, an idolater, and he had idols, and a man from uh, Benjamin in, or Bethlehem from Judah came to him, a Levite, and became his priest. When all of this was really taboo because the, the tabernacle was in Shiloh and there was an established place of worship and these gentlemen decided, this gentleman Micah decided to have his own center of worship and he had a Levite as his priest so he felt somewhat qualified or somehow felt um, like things were going well for him because he had a Levite as his priest even though he was doing something uh, very wrong, very wrong. And then we read about how the tribe of Dan, on their way, uh, in their dissatisfaction with the land that God had given them and the difficulty that they had in the land, in the, in the allotment of land that they had received, because the Ammonites uh, were um, keeping them, and because they didn't follow through with God's command to destroy the inhabitants of the land, which they were supposed to do, and they did not. And as a result of that, the enemy became more stronger than they were, and so they got discouraged, and they decided to go find another place to dwell. Some of the people stayed where God told them to be, and a good majority of them went up north to Laish, up in the northern part of Israel, and we talked about that. And they called that place Laish initially, but eventually got renamed to Tel Dan, and you recall that they had a center of idolatrous worship up there, and we talked about Jeroboam, how in later years, Jeroboam set up one of the, one of two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and, um, and so we talked about that. So now when we get into chapter 19, we see more of the, the, the same kind of climate during this time period. In the time of the judges, it was really uh, an unfortunate time for the children of Israel. It could have been called a time of failure, uh, a period of failure, because they had walked away from the Lord and they were doing their own thing. In fact, in several parts of, um, in, in, in four different places, actually, in the book of Judges, it, it gives this commentary and it says, and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And we see that four different times in this, in this book of, that we had before us. And so it was a time of idolatry. It was a time of rebellion. And it wasn't Israel's shiniest moment. In fact, it was their darkest part of their history, one of the darkest parts of their history. And we know that Dan, as we saw last week, was really the instigator, really the forerunner of this idolatry that ultimately, ultimately, it led them, those northern ten tribes, into captivity in 722 B.C. under the Assyrians, right? And unfortunately, her sister, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, they looked up at their sister and thought, wow, isn't it great that they got all that freedom? They're so progressive. They can do whatever they want. And somehow God seems to be okay with it. Because hundreds of years goes by and, 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 and seemingly there's nothing wrong with it. And so Judah and Benjamin, they adopt the same sinful practices. And isn't it true that sometimes when we don't see God judging something immediately, we think it's his, he's um, condoning a behavior. But we, for, we fail to remember that God is a God of grace and he's very patient. He's very patient, especially with a nation. Sometimes he gives a long time for our nation to turn 
But there does come a time when judgment has to be meted out because God is a God of love, he's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And so we see how that influence uh, influenced the southern two tribes, and they ultimately got led into captivity in 606 B.C. to the Babylonians. So you see how one tribe's rebellion, their beginning of it, how it infected the whole nation, like that scripture that we know so well, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It leavens the whole lump. And so we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 19 tonight, and we're going to see more of the same here. And I would like to um, say this before we get started. Um, uh, this chapter is one of the most difficult chapters, no doubt, in the Bible because of its graphic nature. So I want to encourage you, for those who are online, or even for those of you who are here uh, for young, younger folks, they, they might want to reconsider being here um, only because we're going to talk about some adult themes, okay? So I wanted to warn you in advance because uh, these are things that are in the Word of God. And I love how God doesn't see fit to, he doesn't see fit to sanitize his Word. He's, he makes sure that he tells us the truth. Most people, I remember one time when I was talking to someone about the gospel, and this is a very educated person. Actually, she went to uh, Duke University, and she had her doctorate, and I remember talking to her about the Bible, and she wouldn't want, even want to talk to me about it because she said, and she was bringing up one, uh, a chapter like the one we're looking at tonight because she said the Bible's filled with all of this idolatry and all of these awful things. And at the time, I was a young Christian. I didn't have the wits about me at that time to really address that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't disagree with her. But I didn't have it in me to really explain it why like I could now. See, God makes sure that he, we understand what we're capable of. It's almost like he shows us, this is who you are. And by the way, this is who I am. And look at that great gulf in between. And the whole Bible is a book of redemption. From beginning to end, this great gap that's in between uh, us, a sinful people born in sin, and then this wonderful creator who is perfect in all things, and this great gap in between. And the, all the Bible is building this bridge, and that break in the center of that bridge is Jesus Christ on a cross. But, the, but the, the Bible is very clear about these things, because we need to see them and, and agree with them, because when we look at these things that we're looking at tonight, We'll see a lot of humanity. We'll, we'll even see the depths of our soul. And, and doesn't it say in the Bible that these things were written for our nurture and our admonition? They're written there for our learning. And I need to learn about myself, and I need to be honest with myself. And the Bible doesn't allow me to escape that narrative. I must face my own sin. And this chapter is really ugly. It's one of the ugliest chapters. And so... One of the things, uh, well, let's just go ahead and get into it here. In chapter 19, it speaks about the Levites' concubine. And it says, it came to pass in those days, and here's our often uh, refrain. It's almost like a chorus to a song, except this chorus, unfortunately, is not a very good one. Don't you love a song when you get to it, and the hook you know, the verse is going along, and then there's this really great hook into the chorus, and you're like, man, that just is so awesome, especially when you're singing alone in the car, and you're at the stoplight, and you're singing your guts out, and you look over next to you, and you got a whole family going, because you got your mouth open, and you're like, does that ever happen to you? It only happens to me? Okay, it happens to you? 
Okay. All right. I don't feel so bad. But anyway, this is like uh, a really bad chorus because it keeps coming back, and this is the chorus. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite. No king in Israel. Way before Saul ever came onto the picture. Way before David. Not, not too far along before David and, or Saul and David came along, but it was before there was a monarchy. And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like America, except we have a president in office but yet our culture is such that you wouldn't know that we had any governance. Sometimes you look around and you see the, the nature, maybe even over your own heart, but certainly you look at the news and you're like, there is so much craziness, there's so much discord, there's so much rebellion, and such is the nature of man. And I believe as we look at this chapter, and in and, and a few hours we'll get to that chapter, I'm only kidding, as we get into this chapter, I want you to see, and as we've been going through the book of Judges, actually, I, I think it's true that we can see our own country in a lot of these things, just a failure, failing. Right now, we're floundering. We're failing, folks. And I think partly the reason why we're failing is, could it be that we, the church, need to wake up? Could it be that we, as a church, and I'm not just saying us here at Calvary Chapel, of Rochester. I mean, across our country, the church, many churches are playing games. They're in it for the money. They're doing it for the show, whatever it is. And they, they have their own motives, and hopefully their motive is Jesus. But anything that's not, if the motive is anything other than Jesus, we need to get back to business. We need to get back to why we're here, what God created us for, and what we're supposed to be doing. And we have to get serious in this walk that we have with him, because we live in a culture that is lulling us to sleep. It's been lulling us to sleep ever since the church began. America is a unique, unique system. We are very blessed. We are extremely blessed. We are so blessed. We don't even know how blessed we're at. We are. I remember going to Europe in 1990 when I was a 20, 19, 20-year-old 20 and with a travel study group. And I'll never forget when, I, when we went over to Europe and we've seen all of Europe in a whole month. We, we, we hit literally every country nearly and all the museums, all the cathedrals, very cultural. It was an awesome trip. But I came back and I literally, when, I land, when we landed in Miami, I kissed the ground when I got off the plane. Because I realized for all the culture, we were in such a, we had it made. I mean, we, we don't have a lot of great culture like Europe does, but we have it made. We've got every convenience known to man. So we need to really be careful, be careful. And to be a Christian in this environment is very hard. It's easy, and that's what makes it really crazy. That's where we got to be really careful. And so as we're going through this, I hope that you, um, I haven't drawn a lot of parallels between the book of Judges and America, but we're, you know, I'm doing it now because I, I think we can see it. But there was no king in Israel, and, everyone, and there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. One thing you have to realize is as we get into this chapter, this Levite that we're talking about who's living in the mountainous regions of Ephraim, this is not the same one that we were looking at two chapters ago. Okay, this is a whole different thing, a whole different individual, 
Although the names are same, the, similar, and so it leads us to believe that maybe there, there's some similarity, but there, there isn't. So this um, Levite is different. He also came from Bethlehem, Judah, as did the other Levite in chapter 17 that we were looking at. But it says that he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem, Judah. A concubine is literally a woman who lives with a man but has a lower status than his wife or wives. And it's very common in the Middle East at this time, and the Near East as really what they're called, for kings and rulers to have more than one wife. Polygamy. Polygamy. In fact, we know that Solomon was one of those polygamists. Even though God had told him over and over again, in the, in the law, it was written that they should not have more than one wife, really. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon, he had not only 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women in his life. How many days are there in a year? 365. That's like going out to lunch with three of them every year or every day. Hey, how you doing? What's, what's your name again? <laughs> you know, so it's a little crazy. But this was never endorsed by the Lord at all, um, at all. In Deuteronomy 17, just, you know, uh, it, it speaks of this. God gave commandments concerning kings as uh, God would raise up kings in Israel. These were some of the qualifiers of a king. It says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around you. You shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren who shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not notice. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not turn that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And all three of these things Solomon did. He had a horse stable. If you go to Israel with us up in Megiddo, you actually see this horse stables that he kept, these, uh, this fleet of horses, one of them. One of his horse stables was there in Megiddo that we see. And he multiplied wives to himself. 700 wives, 300 concubines, did exactly what the Lord told him not to do. And yet, the Bible says that he was one of the wisest men that ever lived. And he did. He started off great, didn't he? Solomon is a wonderful example of somebody who starts off really well. But as he went on in his life and the, the success and God speaking to him, and all of a sudden he thinks he's something. And then the wives come along and they turn his heart away. Exactly what the Bible foretold hundreds of years before he would be born. God says, Solomon, if this happens, the, your wives are going to take your heart away from me. And I'm sure at the time he thought, no, it's not going to happen. But it did happen. And when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's sort of like his coming full circle and saying, you know what? Everything I did was vanity. It was emptiness. Without God... It's a great way to turn around because that book is really good for us because he was richer than Bill Gates. He was richer than Bezos. He needed the wisdom of God and God gave it to him, but he walked away from God for a season. But notice it says that this concubine played the harlot against him. This concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. 
and she was there for four whole months. Now, according to the law, she should have been killed, right? Because a harlot in Israel was not to be tolerated. Even among those, and this woman was from Bethlehem, so she was from Bethlehem. And here she is, a concubine, playing the harlot against the man who she was with. And would to God that our culture valued and protected the sexual purity of themselves and their kids. You know, some parents, they're turning a blind eye to things and allowing their teenage boys or teenage girls to just explore. After all, if it feels good, do it. That kind of mentality. And just as this woman was playing the harlot in Israel... And there was a death sentence on her for that. We look at our own culture and we see the same thing. Young girls, their parents, putting them on birth control just in case they make a mistake, just in case they don't want them to ruin their life or to ruin their career. And I understand that. I really do understand that. But what are you saying to a young person, a young lady, when you hand her birth control and, you, and she's, she grows up in the church, and there are Christians with teenage girls who do these things. And I understand it from the heart. I understand why, but it's wrong. The message that it's sending is, yes, abstinence and, and waiting until you're married, that's all fine and good. But, you know, you're human. You make a mistake. Well, you know what? People have been making those mistakes for thousands of years. Shouldn't we honor the word of God and, 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 and rise to the occasion and not candy coat things and just, you know, act like this is okay, this is okay? No, we need to be firm. I, I believe we need to be firmer. We can't allow our kids to grow up in a godless environment because so many people are doing it. And it's interesting that this priest would, even after he discovered that this concubine was playing the harlot against him, the, in Leviticus 21, it says that speaking of the regulations and the conduct of priests, they were not to take a wife who was a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. And certainly after he found out she was, he still pursued her, which there is some, there's a wonderful heart about that. He didn't immediately take her to the gavel or to the, didn't take her to the, the guillotine. <laughs> you know, he had a heart and he, but at the same time, it, it shows how, um, even though there seems like compassion in that, there can also be a great compromise. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, There shall be no ritual harlot to the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. And so we go on into verse 3 here, and it says, Then her husband, he arose, and he went after her. So she takes off for four months. She goes back down to Bethlehem in Judah. He's in Ephraim. He goes and he finds her. She's with her dad for four months. He finds, he finds that she's been unfaithful to him probably several times, but he goes after her nonetheless probably loved her. And it's kind of interesting, I say that with an asterisk, because as we get closer and get farther on into the chapter, 
I really wonder where this guy was at, to be honest with you. you you'll see what, we, what I mean when we get there. But her husband arose, and he went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And that, that certainly is a, a good thing. Having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him, and so she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. He's probably thinking, take my daughter, please. <laughs> she was yours, and now she's back again. Or maybe he was glad to see his daughter. I hope that that was the case. But now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. And so they ate, and they drank, and they lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day that he rose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and then afterward go your way. And so they sat down, and the two of them ate, and they drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. I mean, who could refuse that? You know you got a long journey ahead of you, at least, you know, several hours, especially from where he lives. Could be an all-day thing and rough terrain. Why not stay an extra day in, on this guy's dime? <laughs> He's going to feed you. <laughs> He's going to be hospitable to, to, to you. And you get to talk and hang out. Anybody here doesn't like to talk and hang out and be fed? You don't, Scott? You don't like to do that? Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, we all do. It's, it's nice to fellowship. And what better thing to do than to do it around a meal? So they sat down. The two of them ate and drank together. And the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. In verse 7, And when the man st stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, So he lodged there again. Then he arose early on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. Can you, can you see how this goes? And see, we, we don't understand this kind of culture because it's foreign to us, because we don't really live in this kind of culture. But back in this time, hospitality was everything. It was really held to a high, high place. And it was a good reflection upon you if you offered hospitality. And you wanted to refresh your guests. You wanted them to be with you. You wanted to bless them. Because everywhere you travel in Israel back at this time, there was no cars. You know, everything was, it was rough terrain and a lot of rocks. A lot of rocks. Very mountainous region, very rough area. And so when you finally came to a place, you were ready to put your feet up and have something cold to drink, an iced tea. You were, you were very thankful when somebody would wash your feet after all the mud and the dirt and the dust and the dry sun cracking your feet. So it's very common for this thing to happen. So he delayed him until afternoon and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, we're in verse 9 again, he says, look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you may get home. And so, finally, the man has kind of had enough. The man, however, verse 10, was not willing to spend that night. So he arose and departed and came 
opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. So what you got to think here is a map, and, and a map, if you were to look at where Bethlehem was, Bethlehem is like right here, and then right about six miles, four to six miles, something like that, seven miles to the north is Jabus. Jabus is what we call Jerusalem. They call it Jabus because the Jebusites, the pagan idolaters, that they were. They inhabited that city. You recall several years from this time that we're looking at when David finally um, is king, he has Joab. Remember, go up that little shaft in the Gahon Spring that we visited in Israel? He goes up and he conquers the city of Jabus, and they called it Zion, the city of David. But that's how it was conquered, by one man going up through a water uh, main in a rock, and he climbed it up, and he was able to get into the city, and all the other soldiers came up, and they were able to take the city pretty easily. But it was called Jabus. Later on, they called it Jerusalem, the city of peace. And so, not too far away, you can understand it. Put yourself in the picture. I like to do this often. Here it is, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and he's saying, stay with us. And this guy's thinking, well, I probably got, I got six miles to go. I'll just go to Jabus. You know, I could be there in a couple, like an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, or less, right? You can walk that, that distance in an hour or two, hour and a half, something like that. So he was not willing to spend the night, so he rose, departed, came, to op- came opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. And when they were there, uh, or with him, were the two saddled donkeys, his concubine also with him. You know, and I wonder, as we get into this passage, what would have happened if they would have just stayed the night one more time? You know how, uh, when I, as a man, when I, we're getting ready to go somewhere, I don't know, guys, can you relate to this? When, when we have a family, we're going camping, and we're leaving in the morning. I want to leave in the morning. I don't want to leave at two in the afternoon. You know what that's like, Scott. And so when you want to go, you want to go. You want to, you want to get at it and get going on the road, right? That's just your, the way we're wired, right? And it would have been better for this man to have just stayed another night. But by that time, he'd felt delayed, delayed, delayed. And finally, it's like, I just can't. I got to get out of here. I got to go. I want to get back home. And would to God that he had just waited. And you're going to see what happens when sometimes we just get a little too antsy. You know, some places are really bad in the daytime. We're going to see a place in a few moments that's really bad at nighttime. Some places are bad in the daytime, and some places are really bad at nighttime. And we're going to see this place, Gabea, a place in Benjamin, that probably during the day it seemed like a normal place. Maybe behind closed doors there were some evil things happening, but boy, once the sun went down, all of a sudden it was like Mallory Square in Key West. Anybody been to Mallory Square in Key West? Only the pastor. <laughs> we used to vacation down there in a, in a timeshare thing, and Mallory Square was right there. And let me tell you, every, it, it's a circus. And I mean that in every sense of the word. Very, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah, really interesting place. There was some beauty and some nice things about it, don't get me wrong. The sunset was beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. So, so they go, so they were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And so the servant to his master said, Come, please, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and lodged in it. The Jebusites, remember, are a pagan 
uh, group of people, and they're up on a mountain. It's pretty much impregnable. In fact, that was their boast when David came against it. You can't, you can't take this place. You're, we're, we're too impregnable. You can't mess with us. So they just, instead of messing and going into the Jebusites, going into Jabus, they decided to go a little bit north of Jerusalem. And so, but his master said to him, verse 12, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners. These are a city of foreigners. Let's go to our own people. Sounds really good, doesn't it? After all, your own people will treat you much nicer. Please let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go to Gabeah. Now, Gabeah was just a little bit north of Jabus. And this is ironic. It's interesting because they went to an area within his own people, and they're going to encounter disaster there. When he might have turned into Jabus and maybe wouldn't had a problem at all. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes the the more trouble you get into is by doing the thing that's most familiar and the things that feel more familiar to you than going to some place you you don't have anything to do with and you've never been before. Sometimes you get in more trouble doing the thing that just feels right to you. And this is exactly what they did. So, verse 13, his servant said, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gabeah or in Ramah. Now, both of these cities, Gabeah and Ramah, were in within the tribe of Benjamin. And these are the children of Israel, not Jabus. In Judah, right on the border of Judah and Benjamin, Jabus, as you already told you who they were. So now they're in their own land and their own people. This has got to be safe, got to be a good place. Unfortunately, the place where they thought they were safe, they were actually not. Sometimes our greatest calamities and hurts come from those whom we know or are familiar with. Isn't that true? No one can hurt you more than somebody who's familiar. Have you heard of the term friendly fire? Somebody in the army or the services, they get... One of the men are firing on the enemy and one of his own guys gets in the way and he gets killed. It's called friendly fire. And sometimes we, we can get into a lot of trouble and we, we think that we're safe because we're around people that we know. We're around good people. Jesus said something really interesting and of course the context is a little different here. In Matthew 10, Jesus, uh, speaking of the, the division that comes through those who share the gospel, he said to his disciples, Do not think that I have come to, the, to, to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And, I, and, and in context of the gospel, we understand what that means. But there is something about familiarity that we automatically think we're safe, and sometimes we are not. And this is certainly one of those cases where it actually turned against these men and certainly this concubine. So verse 14, they passed by and they went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and lodge in Gabeah. And when he went in, he sat in the open square of the city, for no one would take him, take them into his house to spend the night. And, and, and you've seen this before. There's, most of these cities were fortified. There's a gate to the city. And you go inside the gate, and there's a square in there where people would hang out and talk business and things of that nature. And usually when a foreigner or somebody that nobody knew came in, people would automatically see them and say, hey, you can come and stay with us tonight. 
You can stay with us. And because uh, it was just very hospitable. It was a very, it was the right thing to do. This is their culture. And it goes to show how far things had gone in this culture when no one would reach out to them. It even says there, no one would take them into his house to spend the night. So they're out there in, in the square. Hospitality, it's important. It's something that is waning in our culture, in America especially. And part of it, I think, is perhaps because of sin. It's very hard, you know, trust is something that is earned, isn't it? We don't automatically trust someone. I don't automatically trust someone. I trust somebody because I've been with them long enough, and you, you get to know a person. And trust is something that is established, isn't it? And in this culture, things were such, especially uh, earlier than this, actually, when things were a little less degraded in Abraham's time, for instance. People trusted one another. They, they, they'd reach out to one another, and they had this wonderful compassion and grace with one another, and things weren't as... There were still issues, don't get me wrong, because sin is sin, and man is sinful. But the culture was such that they, they really valued this idea of hospitality. And it challenges me, to be honest with you, because if it's not somebody I don't know, chances are I'm not going to feel really comfortable about having them stay with me if they needed to. I mean, we live in a culture, too, where there's hotels, and these things make up the balance of these things. But I think you get my point. When you think about these kinds of things, it kind of challenges it, doesn't it? Would I be willing to do that to a total stranger I'd never knew? Would you be willing to let a man, two men come into your house and you got a wife and a couple daughters? You have no idea who they are, where they're coming from. But hospitality is something that is, is good. So verse 16, just then, as they're sitting out there in the square, nobody's reaching out to them, nobody's asking them to come in. Just then an old man comes in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim, and he was staying at Gabeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And so he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am there, or I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into his house. And although we, we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for your young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. In other words, the man is saying, listen, if you take a sin, you don't have to worry about doing the normal things that normal people do. You don't have to feed my donkeys. You don't have to feed us. We got our own provisions. May that be a, you can relax a little bit, right? That's what he's saying to this host. And the old man said, verse 20, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. And see, his heart was right. This was a man of the old guard, a man who, had, who understood what hospitality was all about. He said, it's my responsibility. Only do not spend night in the open square. And that was really good advice. This man certainly knew this culture. He knew this, 
this town. Who knows how long he had been here. So he brought him in, verse 21, into his house, and he gave fodder or food to the donkeys, and they washed their feet, which is a very normal sort of Near Eastern, Middle Eastern custom. Remember Jesus talked about that all the time, how, you know, he would go into a house and he'd go into the Pharisee's house and they wouldn't wash his face. They wouldn't let him wash his hands or they wouldn't wash his feet when he came in. And he says, but this woman has washed my, my feet with her tears and dried it off with her hair. Remember that? That's what Jesus was talking about. But you, Mr. Pharisee, a leader in Israel, you wouldn't even do any of these common sort of hospitable things to me? So he brought him into his house, gave food to his donkeys, washed his feet, and they ate and drank. Now, before we go any further into verse 22, we have to look at something. Turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 19. You're going to see something very interesting. In fact, you're going to see a parallel that's so strikingly similar. similar. It's going to be quite shocking. In Genesis 19, you recall the event. This is during when Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice in verse 1, we're just going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to come back to our place here in uh, chapter 19 of Judges. Notice in Genesis 19, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, Lot saw them, and he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself to his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. This was all very hospitable, very common, practical things, that you may rise early and go on your way. And remember, um, these three angels were just talking uh, to, actually three of the angels were, were talking to Abraham just prior to this, and Abraham knew that one of them was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ himself. He was literally talking to Christ in a theophany or a pre-incarnate uh, image of Christ on the earth. And these other two angels were going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these two angels, finally now, they come to Lot, but he insisted strongly because they said to him, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. These two men, pure as anything, their whole countenance just gave off this persona of purity. And if there's something this world really hates, it hates purity. You ever notice that? The purer you are, someone sees you as a challenge. And what is, isn't it awful? It's an awful thing, but the evil of this world wants to destroy purity. When they see a pure soul, when they see a young girl, a young virgin girl, when they see a young virgin guy, what does that awful person want to do? How far can I get them? What do I have to do to make them compromise? And this is the evil world. And here it begins. So he's, he insisted strongly, so they turned aside into him, into his house, and they entered his house. He made a feast. He baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. That word know is exactly what you think it is. Because remember in, in Genesis, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bare Cain and Abel. He had intimate relations with her. That's what these men wanted to do to these two angels. 
So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and picture this in your mind. And he said, please, my brethren. Boy, that's a scary thing. Lot, why are you calling these guys your brethren? Maybe he's trying to appease them. Do not do so wickedly. See now, notice, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. I don't know about you, but if I was in this culture and I had two virgin daughters, and these men came knocking on my door, and they wanted the men inside of the building, there's one thing I don't think I would do. I would break every law. And I would say, sorry, you're not going to have my daughters either. But this is the whole town that's at his door. This is how perverted this culture had been. And they said, stand back, these men, these uh, sodomites, these were homosexual men. They said, stand back. And they said, this one came in to stay here, and he's, he keeps acting as a judge. So even their very presence, these two angels, just their very presence brought conviction on every, every person that saw them, and they felt judged right to the core. They felt convicted. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hand and pulled Lot into the house with them and they shut the door and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Even when these angels did this uh, miracle and just blinded these men, they're still in their lust. They're clawing for the door, the threshold, trying to get in. Can you imagine that kind of lust? That's the kind of world we live in today. This is like the ultimate in idolatry of caving into the flesh, serving the flesh to the nth degree. You're even blind and you're still trying to satisfy your desire. What a wicked, wicked thing. What a wicked thing. Go back with me to verse 22 in Judges 19. We're going to see a very... Same thing happening here with a minor variation. Aren't you glad that Lot's two daughters weren't taken outside? Do you ever notice that? I want to bring that to your attention, that he didn't give them. He offered his two daughters, but notice it didn't happen. God intervened, and I'm so glad he did. The two virgin daughters were spared. I like that. I'm sure Lot was very thankful for that too. Going back now to verse 22, it says, And they were enjoying themselves, and suddenly certain men of the city, hearing, and this is in Gabeah, remember, in Benjamin, these, these, this man and his concubine and his servant. It says, Suddenly certain men of the city perverted men, and these were literally men of Belial. These were wicked men. They were, um, they were homosexual men. They surrounded the house, and they beat on the door, and they spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the men who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. Wow, this is almost like a carbon copy of what we read in, in, in uh, Genesis. Where did they learn that from? Did they even know the word of God, these Benjamites in Gabeah? Maybe they had heard something about this, and maybe their, their conscience were so seared that they decided, you know what, we're going to do the same thing. We don't care. Nothing has stopped us this far. We're going to go all the way. See how honest the Bible is? That may scare you. But I would imagine for all of us in this room, adults, we can say, this is, this is the real world. 
and it's going to become more the real world as time goes on. We're seeing it in some cities already. We're just not hearing about it on the news so much. There's so much news. That's why it's so important that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. But he brings this to our attention to show us, this is who you are apart from me. This is what you're capable of apart from me. And aren't you glad tonight that you are in Christ? I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm so glad he's got a hold of me, and I'm so glad he's got a hold on you. Such a blessing to be a Christian today, isn't it? We've got such, we got the best. It is truly a remarkable thing. So certain men of the city, perverted men, they surrounded the city, they beat on the door, and they wanted to know the man carnally. And so these men were homosexuals. And does God condemn homosexuality? Yes, he does. In our culture today, nobody wants to talk about it. It's a taboo topic. You'll be branded and, and uh, uh, canceled if you even bring it up. But this is what the Word of God says about homosexuality. And I think it's important that you write these scriptures down because, folks, if you don't know these and don't have them written down, what are you going to say when somebody says, well, I love my partner. He's been with me, you know, for three years, and, you know, we're husband and husband. Or I'm, we're wife and wife, or whatever it is, whatever confusion. All sin is an abomination, okay? Whether you're a fornicator, whether you're a heterosexual fornicator, a a young man and a young girl outside of marriage getting together, that's sin. Homosexuality is sin. So is extortion. So is lying. So is stealing. So is extortion. All these things are wicked, right? But notice what God says. He's not going to, we're not going to leave this up to public opinion. This is what the Bible says. Write these down. You're going to need to know them. Leviticus 18, verse 22 and 23, it says, God spoke to the children of Israel. He said, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. You got the idea, don't you? It's an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal. This is called bestiality. That's why I put the proviso on the service tonight, because we're going to be talking about this stuff. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. And these are things that make us blush, or at least they ought to. But in the culture we live in today, this hardly bounces out. It just bounces out, whatever, you know. doesn't bother anybody. Leviticus chapter 20, write this down. Verses 10 through 13. Notice, there's a lot of sins that are mentioned in this chapter, but we'll just highlight uh, these first four verses, or the uh, verses 10 through 13. It says, The man who commits adultery, this is heterosexual couple, male and female, who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Now remember, this is the law. Jesus, when he came... He saw a woman who was caught in adultery, and he extended grace to her. And did it change her life? Yes, it did. She probably got saved as a result of that, and it changed her forever. He didn't exact the death penalty, but this is what it was. This is God's standard. So who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife? The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. Here it is again. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. How much clearer could it be? And yet, many people say, where is it in the Bible that it says that homosexuality is wrong? That's not the only place. We don't have time to go there, but read Romans. 
Read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. An Old Testament declaration of this. See, I'm not homophobic. I'm not homophobic. I'm not afraid of fornicators. I'm not afraid of homosexuals. I'm not afraid of idolaters. I'm not afraid of extortioners. I'm not afraid of liars or thieves. Because such were some of me before I came to Christ. I'm not afraid. Neither should we. We, we, this This is the way it is. This is the truth. This is the word of God. And we need to pay attention. You all pay attention. But there's a world out there that does not know what I'm showing you right now. They think it's okay. Well, you can have your opinion, but is your opinion based upon fact? Isn't that what an opinion really is? And I'm really being challenged about this recently. However, let me say this. An opinion ought to be based upon the best facts possible. If it's really going to be a good opinion. I've got some lousy opinions, my wife can tell you. um, Because I know that there's some work I need to do. However, on this, I'm done. I can say this with 100% accuracy. With every ounce of me, I can say this is the truth. And God loves you enough to tell you the truth. He does. Be thankful for that. Be thankful for the truth. You know, Billy Joel wrote a song in the, in the 80s, Honesty. I hate to bring up a secular song, but it just hit me. Honesty, such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty, it's hardly ever heard, but mostly what I need from you. Isn't honesty important? And does God, is he honest with us? I think he is. He's dreadfully honest with us. You do this, this is what happens. But he also said, because you did this, if you receive my son, I no longer see your sin. My, the, son of, the blood of my son covers all of that. That's also true, right? And that's where we are, folks. That's a wonderful thing. So, and why is this important as we look at this? Why is it important? There's a tragic scripture in the very beginning of Judges. I'm going to read it to you. I have you write it down. It's Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Let me read it to you. Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And this is why this is important to us. Right after the children of Israel came in and into the land of Canaan, and they, were, they divided up their land, God told them, He says, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' successor, the servant of the Lord, he died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez in the mountains of Ephraim. Mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash, when all, and notice, here's the, the sad part, verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them that did not know the Lord nor the work which God had done for Israel. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They served all of the idols in the land. This is where we're at in our country right now. As people have gone on, If a family, if a mother and father don't tell the gospel and and read the Bible to their kids, their kids aren't going to know. And then their kids are going to have kids. And pretty soon, it's, it's only a generation away, and then pretty soon the parents are no longer even talking about the Lord anymore. 
So how important is it for us to tell our kids, to tell your grandkids the wonderful things that God has done in your life? Talk about what he's done in your life, what you've seen him do. Talk to them about what the word of God, the truth of the word of God. You're old enough, you've seen it in action. We've all experienced the power of the word of God in our lives. We share that with our kids. And you know what? When we do, they're going to remember. And we get into the word with them. 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, whatever you can, every day, when you can. And then you know what they're going to do when they have kids? They're going to pull out that little kids' Bible, and while their kids are one, one-year-old, two-year-old, they're going to start reading to them the history. They're going to start reading the Bible to them. But what happens if we don't do that? Chances are they won't do it either, and it just keeps degrading and degrading. And that's where we're at today, folks. There's kids who've never heard the name Jesus Christ except as a swear word. And even then, people have forgotten about Jesus so much, he's not even a swear word anymore. Back in the 60s and 70s, people used to say that. They'd hit their hammer and they'd scream his name. Now they don't even say that. But the man, verse 23, the master of the house, he went out to them and he said, No, my brethren, notice how familiar it is with Genesis 19. I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out to you, humble them, and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. See, I don't understand that. That's a part of my, because we live in a different culture, we are brought up completely different, but this culture, they really held that, obviously, right, to a very high esteem. I don't think I could do it. I wouldn't take my daughter out, my virgin daughter, to a bunch of animals out in the street. Wouldn't do it. I don't care. Let them say what they might. But the men would not heed them. So the men took his concubine. The man took his concubine. Notice, this was, remember, she was the one that had played the harlot against him, right? She, he took her out to them. And he says, um, he brought her out to them. And they knew her. And they abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. So here is... A horrible picture. I don't even need to go into it. A horrible picture. And notice something here, too. It, it appears that only the concubine. I mean, I, honestly, I wish it was neither of these ladies. But notice how the Lord preserved the virgin daughter of this man. There's no mention of her being let out. He offered her, but did she actually go out? Was, did it actually come to that? No. The concubine who had already played the harlot, she was the one, and, and I wish it hadn't even happened to her either. Do you get my point? It's a horrible thing. So the woman, then the woman came as the day was dawning, and she fell down at the door. So they've been abusing her all night. Now the, the, light, comes to, the light starts to come up in the morning. She's there at the door of the man's house where her master was. Still it was light. Her master arose in the morning, and he opened the door of the house, and he went out to go his way. It's like he didn't even have, seem to have a regard of where she was all night. Maybe he knew where he was and just conveniently forgot. I don't know. And there was his concubine falling at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's be going. Well, that's a really nice guy. Come on, woman, it's time to go camping. You packed the car yet? Did you load the stuff on the camels yet? What's wrong with you? What have you been doing all night? Can you hear him? 
He said, get up and let's be going. But there was no answer. So he lifted her up onto the donkey. And the man got up and went to his place. He drove donkey back home to the mountains of Ephraim with his dead concubine on the donkey. There was no helping her. There was no remorse, seemingly. A very strange arrangement. He, arrangement. he seemed to care for her to go fetch her. But now that he's got her, and after all of this happens to her, she's dead on the, on the, on the, on the donkey and there seemed to be no concern. You know, sometimes the, you know, when you look at the animal kingdom and you see how vicious it is, you know, and you think about human nature, we're really no different. Apart from Christ, we're just as nasty as the animals in the animal world. How, how horrible they are. In fact, I think they're even worse. People have the ability to do more strange and wicked stuff to people. It's horrible what people do to people. A lion doesn't even think about doing any, anything but a gazelle, but grabbing it by its neck and then, and then suffocating it until it dies and then eating it. That's what he does. But a person has so many ways to hurt someone else. It's a horrible, horrible world. Man is truly evil. Is there any good within us apart from Christ? Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> you know, we're talking about all this really heavy stuff, and it's, it's here. It's in the Bible. And what is this meant to do? To, 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 to discourage us? No. You know why the Lord tells us? He tells us because he loves us. He says, apart from me, this is what human beings can be like. And when he redeems a soul, isn't it wonderful when he redeems a person, what he does, how he cleanses you, how he takes your life and completely changes you, and now your life is a real blessing. Your life is it's really valuable. It's really valuable. So when he entered his house, notice he took a knife, now, I warned you about this chapter. After this chapter, things are going to get a lot better, sort of, until we get to the end of the book of Judges. We entered, the, the, entered his house. He took a knife, and he took hold of his concubine. He divided her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And it was so that all who said it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. So what does this man do? He takes her. She's already dead. He takes her. He divides her up into 12 pieces. He gets FedEx on the phone, and he drops off these packages to these different places. They open up the package expecting to see something. They find part of this woman with a note attached. This is what the men of Gabeah did to me and my concubine. That incites the whole, all the children of Israel. They get really uptight. They come, and we're going to look in chapter 20 next week. We'll finish the book of, of Judges next week. And we're going to see how all of Israel comes against Benjamin, against the specific city in Benjamin, this town of Gabeah, these men who were responsible, probably a handful of men that were really responsible. We're going to see the horrific thing that happens as a result. And this is the worst. This is one of the worst times. And don't be discouraged. This is a really tough chapter. That's why I put on the message before tonight. I mentioned about what I did. It's really a difficult chapter. But we have to take it and we have to look at it. And let it drive everything out of us that's evil. 
You know, there's, there's nothing worse than to think that these things are not, can't possibly happen. They do. We don't always know ourselves. God knows us, and I'm so glad that in Christ he knows me. He's always known you and me, you and I. But nothing had been done so so much evil had been happening. And this is the worst. This is Israel at its worst. And so we'll finish the next uh, two chapters and and at least this graphic part of the of the part of of this book is over and I'm really thankful. You can only take so much of that. But let it let us learn something from this though too. You know, the, anybody seen that, um, that commercial many years ago? This is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs? <laughs> That's kind of the way it is. This is who you are apart from me. This is what you're capable of doing apart from me. Or the, oh, I'm sorry, this is, this is who you are that I've made you to be normal and healthy, and this is what you are apart from me. Totally something that God has not designed for you. So let's stand together and let's pray. And again, the Bible says that these things are written for us. What? For our nurture, for our admonition, for our learning, to instruct us in righteousness. And you may be saying to yourself, wow, that really, that's really ugly. And it is. It really is. You know, you look at other chapters in, in the Bible when, when Paul begins to read those areas of our flesh that need to be crucified, and they're equally as ugly. They're just not as detailed as we read tonight. But let it, let it, and this is why the gospel is so important, folks, because even though you may not have been this wicked and done anything this despicable before, before you knew Jesus, in our hearts, we are capable of doing horrible things. And it's important to understand that I need, I need to have Jesus in my life. I need the Spirit of God to completely take me over. Are you afraid of that? Some people are. They're afraid to let the Spirit of God have everything. There's nothing to be afraid of. I want the Spirit of God to consume me. Would you join with me and, and be challenged by that? If you haven't already, let the Lord challenge you and say, Lord, is there any part of me that I am not willing to give to you? And would you give it to him? That you could be truly a Christ one. You could be the one that God can use to reach a world that is lost in its sin, dead in its trespasses. Are you willing to do that? I want, I want that, don't you? And so let's pray and ask him to do it even more. Father, we, we, we come before you tonight, Lord, and uh, honestly, I'm glad this chapter is done. <laughs> but Lord, I'm, I'm very much aware of the type of person I was before Christ. And Lord, the truth of the matter is, is that there are many people that are around us 
all around us, family included, Father, that do not know you, that are enemies of God, and yet you love them, but they must come to you, Lord. Help us to be the ambassadors. Help us to be the examples. Help us to love people the way you love people, Lord. Help us to be compassionate with those who are uncompassionate. Help us to love, Lord, those who are unlovable. Lord, help us to rise above the hatred that's going on in our country right now. Help us to rise way, way above it and love each other, regardless of political affiliations, regardless of opinions about certain things. Help us to rise above all of it, Lord, because that's what you've called us to do. You've called us to be worshipers of you. You've called us to be ambassadors. Lord, we want to do that tonight. Would you please, Lord, take more of us right now than you've ever taken before. If there's any part of us, Lord, help us not to be afraid. You are the great shepherd. You're the, the gentle shepherd who leads the sheep. So lead us, Lord, and take us. Consume us in your love, God. May we be those who love you and love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.